Uh, we're going to continue looking in this wonderful book, the story of the, uh, I guess it's a continuance of the book of Genesis, right? And so we are in chapter 4. If you're there, we're going to continue with uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. What is the theme of today's message? This is the theme. God's promise and plan to redeem Israel continues despite Moses' reluctance to obey. And that's one of the things that we're going to see. In addition to that, we have a challenge. And what is that challenge? The believer's response to a holy God who calls us into his kingdom and provides us with the opportunity to serve in his church should be worship. And that is the response that a believer should have as we see the magnificence and holiness of God. And so in your outline, you will see a quote from John Piper. But before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you just for this time that we're able to study your word and just dive into this wonderful passage. Teach us, Father. Help us to focus on what you say and the commands that you give us. And Father, help us apply them to our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Piper said the following. I believe that quote is uh, on your outline. He said, when I read the Bible, I cannot escape the relentless teaching that God has purposes. He has goals in everything he does. He's not a God who is coasting aimlessly. He's not going in circles. The God of the Bible is pervasively pursuing accomplishments of his own counsel. So Isaiah 46, 9, 10 says, I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Piper says, so there it is. I will accomplish all my purpose. God has purposes. He has plans. And he includes Isaiah 14, verse 24, saying, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Well, such is the plan that God had established for the nation of Israel. You know, back in Genesis 15, verses 13, he said, he said to Abraham, he said, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Well, it has been 400 years. And as promised, God has begun the process of delivering, rescuing his people once again. And I say once again, because you remember back in Genesis 46, that, uh, where there was a group of people of about 70, that God used, and God used Joseph to rescue them from a severe famine. And so he moved them from the land of Canaan to Beersheba, to Egypt, to the land of Goshen. It was a fruitful land, the best land in Egypt. And as God had promised, they would be in Egypt where they would be fruitful and multiply. And multiply they did. You know, because in a span of 400 years, they grew from 70 people to over 2 million. But this is not their home. Egypt is not the place where the Genesis 3.15 seed would be born. And just like in the famine, 
when God used Joseph to rescue Job, Jacob's family, God has heard the cry of his people and he has a plan. And this divine plan involves people. Specifically, a man whom he will call to accomplish his divine plan, his divine eternal plan. This man, a Hebrew named Moses, whom God will use to accomplish mighty deeds, he is the one that has been designated to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and into his promised land, into this land that is flowing with milk and honey. So Moses is a chosen vessel that God has designated. It's not Aaron. It's Moses. He is the man. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, God miraculously protected and preserved the man Moses. If you remember, he not only protected Moses from Pharaoh's edict to kill all babies, God also providentially arranged for baby Moses to be raised under what we would say under Pharaoh's nose, right? Because he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household, nursed by Moses' own mother. Who else can plan and arrange something like this but a sovereign and faithful God? No one else can do that. So And so we have the story of our great God, and then we have Moses, the servant. And last week, Lance began the story of the conversation between God and Moses. This story began in chapter 3, verse 1, and it continues on till, uh, to chapter 4, verse 17. And, and as you recall, Moses has been commissioned by God to lead his people out of Egypt. Into the promised land. That's what God had designed. But there is a problem. Moses is pushing back. He doesn't want to be the person, the man to lead the people. And so he begins making excuses. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 10, God says, I will send you to Pharaoh. What did Moses say? Lord, who am I? Who am I? I'm just a nobody. He's not like Isaiah. If you remember Isaiah, what did he say? Here I am. Send me. No. It's like, nah, who who am I, Lord, to go to do this? You know, I like what D.L. Moody said about this. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. In chapter 3, verse 12, God replies to Moses. He says, I will be with you, Moses. And in verse 13, Moses replies with, okay, but who are you? Who should I say sent me? God says, tell him I am sent you. And so in verses 14 to 22 in chapter 3, God lays out his rescue plan. Though you would think, right, that in hearing the audible voice of God and seeing all the things, all the miracles that God had done, the burning bush, right, 
and giving him the detailed plan that Moses would say, I'm ready, let's go. But that's not the case. So this morning, we're going to continue the, the part two of the conversation that God had with Moses. And we're going to see how a sovereign, all-powerful God continues to prepare Moses, his chosen vessel, to lead the nation out of, e- out of Israel, out of Egypt, I'm sorry. Last week, we saw several attributes from God. We saw his appearance, his con- conversation, his holiness, his omniscience, his calling, identity, sovereignty, power, his providence. And today, we're going to continue with his wonders, his wonders. And I call the God of wonders, in verses 1 through 9. But to read the text. Verse 1, then Moses said, what if they, don't, they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. In verse 5, he says, that they may believe that the Lord of the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And so in verse 1, what we see is it is... A miraculous sign that God is providing, but he's doing it for a purpose. And if we keep track of what's going on here, this is Moses' third excuse for not obeying God. Remember? Who am I? Who are you? Now we have number three. What if they don't believe me? You know, some call it hesitation, but even if it is, whatever it is, it comes form of doubt and fear, right? Perhaps Moses was scarred for life When he remembered back in chapter 2, verse 14, if you remember, when he was trying to break up a fight between the the Israelites, two men, that one of them said to him, who made you a prince of or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Perhaps that's what Moses is thinking. But here in verse 1, Moses says, what if they will not believe me, God? What if they will not listen to what I say? I mean, has he forgotten the conversation that he had with God in chapter 3, verse 11, when, when God said, listen, I will certainly be with you. You know, this word certainly means assuredly. It's, a, it's settled. It's reliable. It's dependable. Know for sure that I will be with you. You know, it's the same assurance God gave Moses a few verses later in in chapter 3 of Exodus in verse 18. He says, not only will I be with you, they will pay heed to what you say. The word heed means they will hear you. They will pay attention to what you say. But Moses is not convinced. And so God provides three signs to help him with these doubts. And so we see the first sign, turning a staff into a serpent and and into a staff again. 
One author commented on this. He said, God, to compensate for the mistrust of Moses, provides him with three divinely empowered signs that will convince the people of his mission. And these are the three signs that, that provide Moses with divine authority, right? But authority, this authority is not from Moses. This authority will come from God. This is the first sign, turning a staff into a serpent and, and into a staff again. I was thinking of just putting turning a staff into a serpent, right? But that's not the whole miracle, right? It, the, snake, the staff turned into a serpent and then back into a staff again. That's a big miracle. Verse 2, God says, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. I would fly, flee from it too because I hate snakes, right? What kind of snake was it? It's probably poisonous, right? So we have an ordinary stick, a shepherd's staff, very likely something that Moses carried around for many years, and it turns into a poisonous snake. Moses was afraid of it, and he cautiously does what God says. He says, grab it by its tail. So he grabs it by its tail, and what happens? It's a staff again. So what's going on here? What's the object lesson for Moses? Well, remember, Moses is still having doubts about the mission God has called him to. So the lesson is this. You know, if God can take an ordinary stick, stick of wood, and turn it into a poisonous snake, he can most certainly accomplish the rescue of his people with feeble, doubting people like Moses. Right? He had accomplished that. You know, I read a quote from Francis Schaeffer. I believe that's on your outline. He said the following. He says, you know, consider the mighty ways in which God used a, a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had become the rod of God... So that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can, be, can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. I like that quote, quote. Because what it means is that for Moses to be used by God, he had to first fully trust him and obey. That's a good principle, right? We will not be useful to God until we fully trust and submit to him and obey. In the hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, I know this is an old hymn, the first stanza says, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. You know, it was the staff of God that Moses was able to convince the, and persuade the Israelites that God had spoken to him and that he was sent by him to lead them to the promised land. You know, what we see the picture is that God is asking Moses, telling Moses, listen, I'm here. I'll be with you. Do not fear. You just need to trust me. 
But there's another tidbit of information that I, I want to mention. Have you ever wondered why God used a serpent as, as one of the miraculous signs? I mean, he could have used, you know, fire from the sky like Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? He could have used lightning, a storm, or something else. Why a snake? Well, everything that God does is for a purpose, And so, in Egypt, a snake was a symbol of Egyptian power. The Egyptians worshipped the snake. They saw it as a source of wisdom and healing. An author described it this way. He said, the cobra represented in particular the nation, the national god of lower Egypt and was the foremost symbol of Pharaoh, reflecting his claim to divine royalty, sovereignty, and power. Therefore, it constantly appears on his crown or helmet as depicted in reliefs, paintings, statutes, etc., his scepter is often a stylized cobra. Even the Egyptian gods are frequently de- depicted with a scepter in, in the form of a snake. We are safe in concluding that the transformation of the rod to a snake is, is a sign aimed precisely at the very symbol of Pharaoh's alleged power. Interesting, huh? Everything that God does is for a purpose. And I, I was kind of curious about this, and I looked on Google, of course. And everything about Egyptian culture, when it comes to Pharaoh, his, his whatever he wears, and everything, his scepter, it, there is a snake there. So it was all connected, right? God is providing this miraculous sign. He's pretty much telling these people, I'm God. I'm in control. And he's attacking their idolatry. I mean, if we, if we think about this in Scripture, when you think of the serpent, if we look at Scripture, what does it represent? What does this uh, snake represent in Scripture? The devil? What else? Deceit, right? And so, when we look at Egypt, who are they basically worshiping? Right? The devil. The serpent, the deceiver. You know, like what Philip Ryken says regarding the staff and serpent. He says, by changing a stick into a serpent and back again, God demonstrated his authority over the gods of Egypt and over Satan himself. That's the key. Who is the true God, right? It's not Pharaoh. It's not their false gods. It's God, Yahweh, the Almighty. You know, but if the first sign was not convincing enough, God then provides a second sign. Make a hand leprous and whole again. Verse 6. The Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. When he said, Put your hand into your bosom again, so he put it into his bosom again, and when he took, out, took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. I can imagine what it would have been like when God said, put your hand, when, he, when God told him the first time, put your hand into your bosom, kind of put it in, take it out. I wonder what the reaction was, right? When Moses saw his hand, probably a little uh, surprised, right? Leprosy was widespread in Egypt. It was a disease that was very contagious, 
incurable, that it required total seclusion um, for those infected. And we see an example of this in Leviticus 13, verses 45 and 46. And so what we see here is that the mere fact of seeing the hand instantly being diseased and instantly being healed would have been shocking. But even though more impressive was a mere fact that when Moses put his leprous hand back into his bosom and he took it out again, it was completely healed as if nothing had happened. You know, some authors say that this sign has overtones of judgment for Moses' disbelief and his continued pushback to God's commands. Though at the same time, it might indicate and anticipate the type of pain God would inflict on Egypt, which would be the boils. However, one thing is clear. This sign is clearly a display of what? God's power. Right? What is his power over? Even diseases. And if God can create a leprous hand instantly, a disease so awful, so loathsome, and incurable, and then heal it again instantly, effortlessly, then it will be no problem for God to deliver his people from the hand of the Egyptians. Then we have the third sign. Turn water into blood. Verses 8 to 9. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water you take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. You know, this third sign is going to represent the first sign of the ten plagues, or what one author calls the the mighty acts of God. A.W. Pink mentions Dr. Uckwart, and he says the following, The Nile was Egypt's life, its waters in the annual inundation, pouring over its banks and spreading the fertilizing mud over the ground, prepared the way for the harvest. But the sign shows that God could turn that blessing into fearful scourge. Instead, and instead of life, he might make the river forth, bring forth death instead of fruitfulness, corruption. And so what we see that the purpose of the third sign was primarily for three reasons. One, it was intended to calm the, the fear of Moses, right? That they, the people, the elders need, uh, would not believe him. But also it was to be, God says it was only to be used if the first two signs were not accepted. But I think as we look at the text, it was really directed at the heart of Egypt, Egyptian idol worship. You know, that is the Nile River. The Nile River was an idol. Egyptians considered the Nile as a source of life, and therefore they saw the Nile as their god. They even had a temple built as a tribute to it. They celebrated annual festivities to honor the Nile River. 
So you can see, you know, their idolatry. And so God used this sign to demonstrate God's power over the Nile and Egypt as a whole. But we can see it, see it a different way. What does blood represent? You know, it could represent life or it can represent death, right? One of the two. In this case, life for the Egyptian slaves, who is that? Israel. And on the other hand, death for the Egyptian captors, who is that? Egypt. So if the first two signs are not believed, God tells Moses, Moses, okay, this one, they will. It will do the trick. So what's going on? Well, up to this point, Moses, we can see, has been pushing back, pushing back. And yet the Lord has been answering his questions and providing miraculous signs so that he can be assured that God is with him. And with this third sign, turning the the water of the Nile into blood, is Moses finally convinced that God is with them and he says, I got it, I understand it, I know who you are, let's go. We have point number two. The long-suffering and patience of God. And so in letter A, we see the patience of God demonstrated with Moses' excuses. Verses 10 to 12. And if you're tracking those excuses, this is number four. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken for, to your servant. For I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What do we see here? You know, we don't know exactly what was going on with Moses. Some say that he stuttered. Others say because of his years in exile, he had forgotten how to speak the Egyptian language. That he had lost practice of being able to communicate well especially before Pharaoh. But whatever the problem is, this is not going to change God's plan. Remember, he has a plan. He has selected him to be the person to lead, lead the people out of Egypt. But you know one thing, I don't know if you read the text before, but it amazes me how the Lord is patient, so patient towards Moses. And he's helping him so patiently, work, helping him work through his fears and doubts. I don't think I would have the same patience, right? I would just jump and go somewhere else. And in verse 11, even though we see how patient the Lord is, we see a soft rebuke. And, and then at the same time, it's a teaching moment for Moses. And what is that teaching moment in verse 11, Right? Does Moses think that God doesn't know about some kind of speech impediment? Of course he does. And that's the point. You know, Paul speaks to this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 1.27. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God had cho has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 
In Moses' mind, he is weak, he's unqualified, he's not the guy. But who's responsible for his speech problems? Who is it? It's God, right? It's God. Who made him that way? God. And so Moses is missing the fact that God is the one who chose him to lead the people. And it is God who will equip him. It is God who will provide the words to say when he goes before Pharaoh and the elders. So either Moses doesn't understand, doesn't connect the dots yet, or, or, or does not believe what God said back in chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verse 12, when he said, certainly I will be with you. And not only that, he says, I will give you the words to say. It's like God saying, this is my plan. I'm in control. It's okay. Just go. Obey. You know, when Moses didn't think he could do it, he says, who am I, Lord? But I found an example of this in Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, where it says that Amos replied to Amaziah, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I'm a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. And it's like, who am I, Lord? But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Who does God use, right? Common people. I love this, right? Because we can relate to them, at least with me, right? Simple guy, right? I can relate with this. And we look at Moses like Moses, right? Way up here. He was just like us, right? So Moses is focused on himself and, and is unable to see outside of himself, even with all the evidence that God had provided. I will be with you. This is my name. Here are the signs. I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you power to do all these miraculous signs. And still Moses is, ah, you know. You know, his argument is that he can't speak well. Well, that's irrelevant when you think of what God has planned or what God can do. If God can do all these miraculous signs, does he not have the power to help him speak before Pharaoh? In verse 11, God reminds Moses, what do you think made your mouth? What do you think made you? I will be with your mouth. You know, I will be with you. The passage is a reminder that God uses ordinary people to do his word, to spread his message. Think of the apostles. I like the title of, of John's book, John MacArthur's book, 12 Ordinary Men. Well, the world would, would say they're nobodies, right? But that's what God uses. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you, but this is comforting because it tells me that God can use anyone who is in Christ to save them, to prepare them, to serve them. And many of you are serving the Lord faithfully and praise the Lord for that. But think of it. Who is the one that really focuses on the preparation? 
do I have to say, well, you know, I need to go to school these many years, and I need to do all this, this before I can start serving? No. And that's the point. Because God gives even those who are tongue-tied, mute, the ability to communicate his message. Listen, my brothers, if God can use a simple guy named Arnold, right? He can certainly use everyone, right? And so God reminds Moses, don't worry, and provides a command and a faithful promise. Look at verse 12. What does God say? Now then, what does he say? Go, right? No more excuses. Go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. What other excuses can Moses come up with? Right? We could say, well, what's going on here? Will Moses say, I'm not qualified? Will he say, I'm a nobody? God just gave him a promise. Is Moses finally going to say, yes, Lord, I'm ready to go? But that's not the case. And so we see that God's patience with Moses' disobedience. Look at verse 13. Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Now we see the real motive revealed, right? What is it? I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And so this final objection exposed what was underneath all his excuses. He just didn't want to go. In other words, Lord, send whomever you want except me. Right? I don't want to go. Do you remember who else struggled with this? Remember someone in the Bible who struggled with obeying God when he tried to send them somewhere? Jonah? Yeah. Jonah. Yeah. After all that God has done, he's still resisting. Now, why? Why does he want to be God's spokesman? Well, again, we can see all the struggles that he had. You know, at the beginning of his encounter with, with Moses, God seemed to be willing to obey. You know, in chapter 3, verse 4, after God presents his plan to him, Moses was reluctant and finally says, okay, I, I don't know, God, but who am I, right? And so in essence, he says, you know what, God, I love your plan. I, love, I know you've called me, but I'll pass. You know, what's interesting about this is that since Moses wrote this book, I'm not sure I would have written this down about me. You know, that he was reluctant, he disobeyed, he didn't want to go. You would think that he would change his story a little bit. But at the end of the day, these are God's words, not Moses, right? So how does God respond to Moses' reluctance to go? So we see... Point number three, that God provides his spokesman. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and, 
and put the words in his mouth. And even I, even I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to say. And moreover, he will speak for you to the people and he will be as a mouth for you and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand his staff with which you shall perform these signs. You know, I love this, that God is so patient, so kind, and it kind of reminds me of Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 where it says that the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And the text echoes the psalmist in Psalm 145, verse 8, where he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. And so what we see here is the, Lord, the Lord's anger burned. But is that anger in judgment? It's more righteous anger, right? And who wouldn't be angry? Moses' behavior is what's known in the business world as insubordination. It's a fireable offense. This type of behavior should never happen when God is commanding us to do something. Now, as I was studying the text, again, it amazes me to see how patient the Lord is with Moses. He's feeble, he's wavering, he's disobedient. Though at the same time, I think we can relate with Moses. Because at times, I've disobeyed too. We have disobeyed. And God has been very faithful and patient with us as well. And what we see here in the text, that Moses made every excuse he could think to get out of leading the Israelites out of Egypt. I guess it was more comfortable to stay in Midian, being a shepherd, right? It was a comfortable route. But God has a plan. He has chosen him, Moses, for this plan, to to lead the people. And now he's going to include his brother Aaron to be the spokesman. You know, and, and when we look at this text, there are several things that we can learn from verses 14 to 16. However, the one thing to note is that now, with Aaron in the picture, Moses will, in a way, have to share the honor with Moses, right? It's not the same anymore. I like the way one author summarized these verses. He said, Moses missed out on part of God's blessing. No no one is indispensable, not even Moses. God can always find someone else to do his will. But by refusing to do what God has called us to do, we will miss out on the fullness of God's blessing. And of course, we're going to see an example of this, the consequences of this, later in in chapter 32 at verses 1 to 4, where Aaron leads the people astray by, by making the golden calf. Hmm. You know, in the end, Moses proved to be a great leader, and it, he still remains a key biblical figure in Christianity and, even, Christianity and even in Jewish cultures, right? But we need to remember that overall, as God called him to be the rescuer from Israel... There's only one rescuer, right? Who is that? It's God's son. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect son who obeyed perfectly God's command to go come and be our rescuer. 
Jesus came to deliver us from, from our bondage to sin. Matthew 17, 5 says, This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions and in many ways, these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So what separates Moses from Jesus? You know, unlike, unlike Moses, Jesus was willing to obey the command of the Father. Jesus is the perfect God-man who came to rescue us from our sins. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of his beloved son. You know, when we look at this narrative, when we look at this, at this story, I mean, God could have removed Moses and brought in someone else. He could have done it, right? No one else would have known. I mean, how many people did God appear to at the burning bush? Just one, Moses. No one else would have known and God would have changed his mind and chosen someone else. You know, he could have used Aaron as a chosen one, but he didn't. God had a plan, and that plan was for Moses to be the leader. He was the one who would lead the nation uh, out of Egypt. He was his chosen vessel, and nothing and nobody would change what God had already purposed and planned. And so what we see is that what the Lord has decreed, it will happen. You know, as we close this section, I like the way John Durham summarized it. He says, Moses missed out on part of God's blessing. No one is indispensable, not even Moses. I think I just read that one, sorry. Um, but I like the way that um, John Durham summarizes this. He says, the mouth of Moses may be may well be heavy and clumsy, slow and halting in speech. It would not matter if it, if it were dumb altogether and, and Aaron's mouth as well. Yahweh will be there. Yahweh will take responsibility for both the message and the messengers. The staff in the hands of Moses and Aaron is a symbol of his powerful presence. When it comes to leading, who is the one that's leading? It is God. Who is in control? God. Who is the one that equips? God. You know, this story is not about Moses. The picture of Moses we have here is that Moses' failings. But we see a, a loving, patient, kind God who's establishing his eternal plan, his decree of how it would happen, how, will it, it, how it will happen. Can we change God's plan? No. Will it ever change? No. It's established, and it will happen according to how he has planned it out. Don't we, isn't it wonderful that we serve a magnificent, patient God who has planned everything out? 
We don't have to doubt. We don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder whether God is there. He is. He is. So I'm thankful for that. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just reminding us, Lord, of how kind and merciful you are. Lord, as we see the story of Moses, we can see, Lord, how he was uh, doubting you and just uh, pushing back on what you called him to do. Lord, how many times have we pushed back on what you command us to do as well? But you, in the same way, have been patient with us. You have loved us, taught us, put people around us to encourage us. And I thank you. Thank you because you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you, God, for your patience, your kindness. Thank you for your son, our rescuer, who, who came to deliver us from darkness and transfer us into your marvelous light. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. Father, as we go, I pray that we would uh, seek to obey you as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.